The bell's rung, and welcome to another edition of the Icon Showdown podcast. I'm your trusty host, Enan Hennigan, and again with me today is the one and only Chris Pagnozzi. How are we doing today, Chris? I'm great. I'm back. It's good to be back. Outstanding. That's good to hear, and I just want to remind people that Chris is also a prolific podcaster, and you can check out his podcast, Monster Pulse, as well as Set in Horror, both um, appropriately... uh, context for what we're talking about today since we're still in october we are dealing with mainstream horror and determining which should be the most iconic of a given year today's year is 1990 our showdown is nightbreed clive barker's nightbreed versus rob reiner's misery (laughs) interesting contrast when it comes to directors right off the bat Uh, But yeah, no, these are pretty much the two top from the year that aren't overtly comedic because we could talk about Tremors maybe from that year, but there's so much comedy in Tremors. I feel like these two are really the most in contention to be the horror titles of the year. So we're going to do a rundown of the antagonists, the ensemble, the surviving characters, the setting, the deeper meanings, and the fright factors of each, uh, giving a score of um, up to four pentagrams. So essentially, instead of stars, this month we're doing a pentagram range. System. So off the bat, we're going to start with Nightbreed. When was it released? Um, Nightbreed was released February 16th. February 16th. So I'm pretty sure that came out before Misery of that year, which was probably a holiday release. I'm just guessing. Misery was November 30th. There you go. That makes more sense. So we're going to start with the one that was released earlier um, and discuss uh, what makes it good, what, uh, what, what makes it maybe suck a little bit sometimes. Uh, Let's start with the antagonist, the motivations of the antagonist. First establish, who is the bad guy in this? Because this is kind of murky. And Nightbreed. Right. Well, I'd say it's Decker. Decker is the most sinister character. Yeah. Um, if you were just looking at the poster, who do you think it's going to be? Well, if you were looking at it, you'd think Boone was, right? Theoretically, yes. Boone is our... If looking at the poster... Um... Main character, where you see monsters on the poster. Yeah. But ultimately, Decker is not a monster. No. We have an antagonist that is actually human... Um, amongst monsters. Yeah. So we have like an inverse uh, flop here going on, uh, which is pretty interesting. Let's talk about Dr. Decker, played by the one and only David Cronenberg. This is the first time I've seen him act. Yeah. Have you seen him act in anything else? I really love his getup when he's in character as I guess he's called Old Buttonface. Have you seen that? Yeah, I looked it up. Apparently, it's Old Buttonface what, is what he's known as. Scary. Not scary when you refer to him. As <laughs> <laughs> the mask is scary, yeah, though. So for those who are unaware of what Old Buttonface looks like, it's kind of like a Coraline uh, preemptive in that you got this really tight white like head, head wrap. Yeah. Um, maybe is it leather? What do you think the actual material of the mask is? It's really hard because it looks like it's like a burlap. Burlap, okay. But it's, but it's smooth. Am I mistaken? Is there like a zipper. is it sewn like it's weird sewn the way that it's patched? The, the mouth is a zipper that's like half open just for him to breathe, but it's zipped up a little bit. Yeah. No nose, nostril stuff going on at all, right? No. Just the button eyes and the zipper mouth. Do you think this is symbolic for anything? Maybe we can keep that for deeper meanings, but just off the top of our head, what what's up with button eyes? Why is button eyes in Coraline? What does this mean? Yeah. Is this something that is resonating throughout time in terms of horror? No, it's that's a great question. I think it's He is. Um, so he's buttoning people up. He's trying to keep um, them nice and snug. But also, he himself is looking to button up his own, his own like killings. Mm. You know, he's tr- looking to, to pin it on somebody else. True. Um, but I, I, it might just be that it's cool looking. It is cool looking. It definitely is. I think it's possibly the scariest part of the whole movie. Is the mask. Um, what's his motivation? Why does Decker kill? Who does he go for? Well, that, that's kind of what I was just getting at. I believe his motivation is to find another patsy. Try to find someone to pin all these murders on. But why does he murder to begin with? I think he loves... Sadistic pleasure? Sadistic pleasure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be really interesting is if that was a way of helping his patients. Mm. Um, but that's not. No. He does it for the thrill of it. Do you think he went into psychology then because he likes to breach people yeah. in a... Uh, Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. So we have sadistic pleasure, psychological perversion, possibly, especially considering who his victims are, which is 
families. He goes for families. This isn't even your normal serial killer. This is some guy who will creep into some family home, take out the mom first is what we see in the opening sequence. How does he kill her again? He has a knife. Isn't it a knife? Pretty sure it's a knife. Well, the first time we see old button face, the mom in the kitchen. And he slices the throat of the dad in the chair. We can assume that the kid is going to die too, right? Uh, that's good. That's honestly th- that scene was one of my favorite scenes of the movie. Um, vocalization. What do you think about Cronenberg in terms of a sinister character? The way he talks. Oh, yeah. did, did he Very, give enough flair yeah. to it? Do you feel like? I thought, you know, I thought he did a really good job. I thought his um, his character would speak like that. You know, almost like a therapist would. Really slow and with purpose. I'm choosing my words very carefully, and it's very, very quiet. Yes, calm. that's yeah. I pretty much put the same thing. I think it was very smooth yeah. and commanding, um, authoritative, but simultaneously like pretentiously creepy in a way. You know what I mean? Almost, almost like questioning you. Like oh, lying. interesting. Yeah. Um, do you think that's how he talks in real life? Have you seen him interviewed? Is that know. is that how he directs? Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar, David Cronenberg is a very well-known director. Um, he specializes in body horror. Yes. So if you've seen The Fly, which actually comes up a little later here, um, that, that to me is the epitome of David Cronenberg's work, is, is The Fly. Um, uh, beyond his voice, uh, was there any other like uh, thing that made him scary when he was out of character? What about the look? Like his general look. David Cronenberg, does he does he come off as a serial killer himself? I think he is, you know, trying to get people to trust him. He, he's dressed real smooth, mm-hmm. and like a, a professional. What about his haircut, though? Very of the day. Very of the day. All right, I'll give you that one. Sweeping a little bit. Uh, originality of this character? Is this a type of killer that we've never seen before? I think so. I think it's pretty original. A guy that goes after whole families. Yeah. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Like old button face, personally. Button face. Yeah. Um, let's bust over to Misery and compare him to Annie. Good old Annie. Played by the one and only Kathy Bates. Uh, she's going to give uh, old button face a run for his money here. Yes. What are her motivations? Why is she the bad guy? Well, specific to this story, I think she is obsessed. She That's is a perfect word for it. Obsessed with Paul. Hmm. Indeed. Paul, the author. I hate to say that I can't remember his last name as well. Um, they, where does that obsession stewed from? Where does it, where does it like come from, uh, though? A specific book series that he, he wrote. Right, the, the Misery the series, series. The namesake. And Annie is obsessed with Paul Sheldon. Annie Wilkes. Annie Wilkes is obsessed with Paul Sheldon, the author, because she loves this character, who I believe is also Misery. Right. right? Yeah. Is there a book you've ever been obsessed with or an author you've ever been obsessed with? Just asking no. side. There's no series where you had to read the next one no matter what. Not like a Game of Thrones or a Harry Potter guy where you just had to get that next one. I'm a, I'm a movie guy. I'm with you. I'm no, I'm kind of with you. I'm more than like an author, like a Chuck Palahniuk. Right. I, I'm really interested in what he does, Chuck, yeah. but I'm not obsessed in the same way Annie is. I imagine that this, oh man, he is so good at writing what he knows, Stephen King. I imagine he has had some people who have had fan letters that are probably... Scared the shit out of him. Yes. You're absolutely right. No, it, there's some biographical stuff here, and I do want to say that this was one that he wrote when he was pretty intoxicated a lot of the times on various substances. So, yeah, beyond the obsession, I, f- I find that obsession is rooted in loneliness. We have somebody here that is absorbed in fiction, right? Um, uh, there's, I think she has depression. I think we know that she has suicidal tendencies. We know that um, she's depressed. She even says the rain makes her feel... Sad. Where does she get that nice house? She was a nurse, right? She, She's not a nurse. She says she's a nurse. She was a nurse. She was a nurse. She so she got a pension. Job. She lost her job. All right. She lost her job. Um, I believe that house was in her family. Well, you get that idea when the sheriff is in a helicopter and flies over and he's like, there's the old Wilkes farm. You know? uh, I think they're giving the idea that that community, everything is referred to by like a family name. Like that's the mm, Wilkes farm. Oh, okay. So rural Colorado is yes. what we're talking about. Um so she's a failure. Uh, I had for, I'd forgotten that she lost her job, but that just emphasizes the point that she is a failure and she's coming upon uh, one of the most successful people in the world in terms of fiction, which she's obsessed with. But what about her sexuality? Does she have a repressed sexuality? What's going on there? Um, you know, I, I would say so, yes, but because I think she's, 
she lives a very specific life, and I think that she might be very religious. Do we see any sort of religious memorabilia? I was I trying to. She's wearing a cross. She's wearing a cross. Okay. All right. So I think there might be some repressed sexuality going on yeah. there. Like she can't, and now she has. Well, she, she talks about her ex husband, I think. Missed that. Yeah. And of course, she's crazy, right? Yeah. She's got some lunacy. Uh, that's without a doubt. Aesthetic? What do you think about the way she looks? Costume designer, makeup person? Yeah. Yeah, uh, she, she's very plain. Yes. But um, conservatively dressed. Mm-hmm. Um, completely covered at all times. Right. They look um, like thick layers, materials, uh, too. Uh, sweaters, cardigans. Mm-hmm. It's very, like, purposeful, you know? Do you think it is purposely like homely and dowdy? Yeah. Do you think she wants to look that way, or is that like learned? Is this something she wouldn't know to be another way? Because I think that she doesn't want to give off any idea that she was a crazy lifestyle. That's fair. Uptight look is the way I put it. I think okay. it's just like she looks so uptight yeah. constantly. What about her voice? Oh man, well it varies. It but does vary. Not at all. She says some very funny curse words that she has created, I would imagine. I think what Bates has done with this character is the perfect example of how to be passive aggressive, even when you're sounding nice, even when you're sounding evil. You know what I mean? When she's shouting, there's also still like a passivity there that like boils down to what we're seeing versus what we're hearing. I think uh, the way you put it is, is the flux, right? The flux within her voice is, has a keen pre precision depending on her mental state at any given time. And I really find that like it's super passive aggressive. But her screams are blood curdling. Like, yes, but but also to add what you're saying, I think her her um her voice is also supposed to be very like caring and nurturing. Right. The whole nurse side of her um, to to make a patient feel at ease. Indeed, and she's even trustful. Trustful is a great way to put it because when she's telling him, "Oh yeah, by the way, there's gonna be a murder suicide thing here happening." She's so sweet about it. Yes. She's so sweet. Yes. It's like a beautiful little kind whisper. We're both going to die. <laughs> um, originality. Do you think this is an original character? Yeah, I would say so. Have you seen her anywhere else? No. What's she rooted in? Archetypally? I, mean, I think this is one of the most timeless characters that's existed for all the time. It's just a new incarnation oh, of it. The witch. Oh, She's a witch. Oh, okay. He is Hansel and Gretel. Hmm. You know? Ultimately, that's what I saw. Like, yeah. it seems like, oh, this is the savior. I'm lost in the woods. And here we have this nice, kindly old lady with a home that brings me respite. But ultimately, she's going to eat me alive. No, that's, that's, that's... I think she's a witch. Yeah. I totally saw her as a witch, witch throughout it. Um, yeah, and Paul as Hansel and Gretel, dragged into his own demise. Let's go talk about the ensemble then of Nightbreed. Okay, yeah. We got a lot of characters. A lot. These are the opposite. That is the opposite of a I, I misery here. Because of mythology, these characters have names that were very hard to remember. Yes. So I couldn't tell you. This right. Boone. I don't think it's Decker. necessary. Boone and Laurie, we got to know about in Decker. Um, I do think the the head cop, which is the, the main cop, is yeah. is pretty significant. Uh, we can talk more about that in deeper meanings. What he's representative of. Um, but do you think that there were interesting dynamics between any of the characters? Did you care about what was going on between anyone? No. And I'll tell you why. Because I was so confused as to why Boone really wanted to go to Midian that bad. Like, well, here, I mean, he was haunted by these dreams. Right. But they were nightmares. Right. Why was he, I mean, I understand being obsessed over something. Yeah. But why was he trying to find it? Why did he want to live there? Uh, we can maybe talk about that when we're talking about his determination to survive. Sure. Maybe he is, he wants to die. I feel like they spend so much time on trying to sell us their romance between Lori and Aaron. Yeah, Do you buy it? But they spend a lot of time, yeah, like, setting it up with the TNA and just. Ryan Parker loves that. In his writing, okay. He loves to put, like, romance into it. He almost writes, like, really dark romance. Yeah, no, I do think that at the heart of it, it is a love story. Yeah. More than a horror in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, in terms of secondary characters in the ensemble, I feel like two stood out to me, and maybe third to a lesser degree. I really liked Hugh Ross's Narcissi, who was the guy who pretty much cuts off his own face, oh, yeah. who gives Aaron the means to get to, to Midian. Um, and then, of course, you think he's done for good, but Those he comes crazy back. Thumb knife things. That's right. And he put on it to like cut off his own face. At first, I mean, he, he, he comes off super mad, 
uh, out of his mind. Yeah. But then he's the comedic relief once he's right. a night breed. It's like becoming a night breed for him brought him that sanity, right. which yeah, I think. Absolutely. I think I think you're supposed to feel that you're supposed to feel that he is finally where he belongs. He has peace. He is his true self. Yeah, and what's funny is that is the most gruesome scene. Is there a more gruesome scene than no. cutting off his own face? No. And then it looks pretty nasty after the fact as well. Um, and I think I think he's memorable because of the choices the actor makes. They're not usual. He stands out, and he's not like uh, I haven't seen him before, right? No. He's not necessarily a good-looking guy, right? No. He's uh. Once you learn that, learn who he is. He's very creepy. Yes. Yeah. No, I got to give it to him. I thought uh. Narcissi, which is interesting in terms of his name, yeah. right? Cutting off your face. We've got a Narcissus illusion here. Mm-hmm. He's the opposite of thinking himself beautiful by cutting off his own face, yeah. right? So we're, we're drawn on some, some classic illusions. Um, the other character that I actually liked, even though she didn't have a lot of time, was the friend she meets at the bar on her way to Medellin. Yes. When Lori is trying to find the spot where Aaron is killed by the cops, framed by Decker. Yeah. He, she meets, a, I guess her name is... Um, Deborah. No, Deborah Weston plays Cheryl Ann. The character's name is Cheryl Ann. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but there was something so endearing about her. I'm not sure what it was. Familiar or likable, yeah. For me, I cared the most about her out of all the characters, maybe. The ones that perish, right? I found her death sadder than anyone else's Fair. death, yeah. personally. Um, acting abilities across the board. What are we talking about in terms of this ensemble? You know, I, I will say really crazy characters was pretty great except for the exception of a few characters like when we find out this other cop who's basically like this insane almost Nazi, Nazi yep I did not find his acting um, up to par with no. most of the actors over the top super hammy he was like in a different movie than everyone yeah. else was in um, yeah given all the makeup yeah, yes it's not easy to act when you're no, just like no, slapped no. with but also Lori's character I didn't no, neither do I. Uh, I. I don't at all, actually. I didn't find her fun to watch. I didn't care what was going to go down. And, and, and the funniest part was that David Cronenberg was a better actor than a lot of these people who... Yes, I think he was probably the strongest actor of the lot. I don't necessarily know if that's because he was acting, though. You know what I mean? Sure. And plus, I certainly had preconceptions of David Cronenberg associate him with creepiness as it is. So... Yeah. I agree he was the standout in terms of performances. I just wonder if he actually was creating a character or if he was doing David Cronenberg. I don't know. That's a great point. We don't know. Uh, what about the diversity of this film? Um, mostly white. <laughs> but Were there any people of color? Yes. The head FBI... Um, okay. Oh, that's right. The agent who was working with... With Decker, yeah. when he says he's got a gun, right. he's or the one that responds. Gun. That's it's right. Like he was reaching in his pocket. Like, why isn't he under arrest? Yes. Okay. Well, that's good. He's actually a good character. Yeah. Um, put in a good light. And does he pop up at the end though? Is he in the final bat- battle? I kind of don't remember him in the final no. battle. Well, he doesn't make it. Uh, Decker takes out a knife and. Sees oh, him. that's a great kill. You're absolutely right. Take a look. There's something in here you have to see. And then he and then he kills him. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a great death. You're right. So we do got at least a little representation, not as much as we want, considering how many characters right. there were in terms of gender issues. What do you, what do you think? Um, is there, like we talked about, we don't like Lori. Are, are the women empowered in this in a way no. that we want? I feel like there's only one woman that's given any sort of like power, and that is the shape-shifting Catherine Chevier as Rachel. Well, there, there are... She's the one who has the needles that shoot out. Oh, she's also good, too. Yeah, she's... Because the other character at times felt very helpless. Uh, the one that couldn't go out into the sunlight? Correct, yeah. Yes, um, that's true. But she is the only... Well, no, you're right. The the spiny girl does take out some dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, she she's the probably the most empowered of all of them, then. Because, yeah. sadly, um, Rachel, the motherly figure, yeah. um, has to use her sexuality to take down a dude. Yeah. Right, yeah. so that's that's a little she, yeah, that's problematic. Like power is um, seduction. Yeah, but I felt like she was one of the more entertaining to watch Agreed. for multiple reasons. Um, okay, let's talk about the final figures within. Oh no, I'm sorry. We got to go to the ensemble of misery. Such the a small one. Ensemble of misery was fantastic. How many do we have? Well, you've got Annie. 
and Paul, you've got the publicist in New York. Is it a publicist or an agent? Was it his publicist? Um, great question. Okay. Um, it's inconsequential. And you have the sheriff and his wife. Right. Anyone else? That's it. I think that's it. And of course, the waitress at the end that he mistakes for right. Annie's reincarnation. Yeah. Not not a bad one in the mix, right? right? Everyone's good, even in these small roles like the wife of the sheriff. So good. Well, such a small part. Yeah. So memorable. Like, I can see her face. I can see the frames. And then we can attribute a lot of this to Rob Reiner's direction. Yes. But I can see a lot of those frames in my head. And granted, I'll say I've seen Misery a lot more than I've seen Nightbreed. Sure. Sure. Um, Misery's cast feels like a What was your first introduction to James Caan? Godfather. I think that's my... I might have seen Misery before Godfather, if I'm honest with you. Um, yeah, no, I thought I thought everyone was great, and I do feel like, wasn't she nominated for Best Actress that year? Won. I think she, she probably won. won. She should win. That was great. All right, let's talk about, then, those final figures in Nightbreed. What were their means of escape? How did they get out of it? Um, to fight. They were fighting their way out of um, Midian, or to trying to defend Midian. Indeed. Um, how, does Lori fight much at all? I'm trying to remember if she actually uh, kicked any so, ass. No, if anything, she ends up saving that child again. Oh, okay. Uh, but most importantly, the monsters defeat the humans. Yes. So we have an inverse again, um, and Aaron is deemed the savior and foreseen by the prophecies. This is one thing I think Nightbreed does really well, is create like a, a mise en scene. You have such awesome ambience, and even the opening credit scene where you see the prophecy, like it's caveman shit scrawled on the walls, right. and then it gets the payoff that I felt was decent. I thought it was great. It's like you are a Jesus Christ figure of these monsters in a lot of ways. You have to build a new city and, and make sure that we continue to survive. So under normal circumstances, it's the humans that are trying to survive, but then you have here the monsters who are just like misunderstood. Granted, you got the guy who's just like, meat, I need to bite into your shoulder. But he was part of the prophecy. He didn't have any choice. That was uh, all predetermined. Um, and then, of course, in terms of the surviving characters, we know that Decker does not survive. And what's interesting is this this is before Batman 1 is released, is it? Or the same year? He has a Joker-like Batman 1 where he's... Am I wrong? I'm, no, I'm, no, no, right. Where he like falls off the cliff or is, is right. tossed off you're the right. cliff. Not only that, Danny Elfman did the entire score it, of this film. That so is a times, highlight. Yeah, and at times mm. you're, you're, you're feeling like you're watching like a Tim Burton movie just because of Danny That's Elfman's, true. Um, sound design. It elevates it a lot, especially uh, we do. This is based on a book or novella that Clive yeah. Barker initially wrote oh. called Cabal. Um, what? Uh, well, we're talking about these top two surviving characters. I don't think I cared about either one of them. Um, I didn't think either of them were really good actors either. Um, and you mean Craig Shaver? Yeah, not Craig? my favorite. Yeah, not yeah. my favorite. I wasn't. I wasn't invested. Oh, um, if I'm honest with you. Um, and in terms of like the final figures, like these are not Laurie Strodes. There's no memorable nature to them. They're completely forgettable to me. You know what I mean? Right. So when we're talking about the final surviving characters of Nightbreed. I think that's one of its like weaker, weaker sides. But of course, when we talk about the surviving character in Misery, it's the complete opposite. We have a superhero here. Granted, uh, might be a little bizarre to consider, or actually, usually you got final girls. In this one, you have like an old white dude who's the survivor. This is not something you would normally see as a final figure. Um, how much did he want to live? When we're talking about, because we talked about this earlier, the fatalism necessarily of Boone, why is he going to Medellin to begin with? Does he want to die? Does he? Why would she go and want to look at the spot where he died? Do these characters in uh, Nightbreed like life, or are they apparently just too not. stupid? Apparently, not. apparently they're they're so you know out of place in their their current situation that at least he is. He doesn't feel like he belongs. Mm -hmm. He's looking for something else. And they throw everything against the wall at that end. Yeah. It is it was like a thirty minute finale. Yes. Uh, so much pyrotechnics. But I will say, like, the underground bunker was awesome. Yeah. And then when they released the hounds, like the really bad Nightbreed, the Berserkers, uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, it was fun. But I just wish I was a little more invested in some of the characters. I was more invested in Decker. Yeah. Boone should have been so, so much more likable. He should have been stronger, like a stronger character in, in a couple different senses. I mean, stronger. Right. Um, what was his power? Because when he turns into Nightbreed... He gets all these weird marks on his face. Marks on his face. 
because some people got the like that one guy has like the weird snakes that come out of his stomach like that's really gross super like phallic weirdness um spiky woman but i don't know what did he do other than is he just stronger is it just a strength okay all right yes i could see that what's the implication then because we know she survives laurie survives at the end of that one but he turns her do we see we don't get to see her become a a night breed What do you think her power would be? Being boring? <laughs> she could sing. She could sing. That's true. They did have that long scene of her singing. So how how much does that contrast Paul, the author, in Misery and the slow burn of his survival, really? Yeah. Just to not die or feel helpless? I don't know, but you're definitely rooting for him. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's interesting. We'll talk more about his uh, deeper turmoil when we talk about deeper meanings. Um, but ultimately, I found it super interesting that he uses her fandom ultimately to win. Oh, yeah. Like it, oh, was, it was that. Yeah. It's what got him there, got him stuck in the situation, but it's what he used to actually. Uh, his means of escape was the match that she knew he was going to need that final cigarette when he finished that new misery book that she forced him to do. It, was so, it took him forever, too. He had to finish a whole new novel. And, I mean, it, but he had thought it out. Finally right. Thought it out. But did he think about it when he was in the basement and saw like the, the gasoline? Is that what in him? Or did he know? He was improvising, but it was also felt planned out. Yeah, it did feel planned out. I think he was trying to teach her a lesson. Yeah. Like, when the deeper meaning stuff, uh, to me, it was like, it was like God, he's, he comes God, yeah. right? He is her God in a weird way. And he, like, she's Job at the end. Um, I found it also interesting about uh, when he destroyed the book um, that she demanded, he was, he was killing her baby. That's essentially what I was just saying. Her only means of living beyond herself became this last misery novel. And he ultimately, like, squashed it. It's but almost like... Such. Abortive. She did the same thing to him. Mm. The book that he showed up there with, he told her it was basically about him, you know, like going up on the streets. Mm. And she made him destroy his own past. That's true. Um, and, he, and he stoops to the point where he says, I love you. Yeah. So he's able to play her, yeah. even though she, yeah. she does not seem to realize that, uh, just to buy him time to figure a way out. So I'm not sure if he saw it completely out, but when she's like, murder-suicide time, He's, he, bought some, he bought himself some time. He knew how to push her buttons. I think he saw so much maybe misery in her mm-hmm. that there was a way for him to like write her yeah. future. Yeah. He was able to actually see her as a character more than as Annie. Yeah. Um, and certainly when we talk about the surviving characters um, as iconic status, I think he is. I think Paul is somebody that I remember, like the, yeah. the ultimate writer survivor. And then as we talked about, Kathy Bates will never be forgotten. No. Um, okay, let's talk about the setting of Nightbreed. Talked a little bit about it. Um, you have Median, which I thought was first just a cemetery or a town or a right. cemetery outside the town, Median, but apparently it's just the cemetery. Am I wrong about that? Well, I think it was the city like underneath it. I, I think it really was like entering into those catacombs. Okay. Okay. So I, I, maybe. I mean, because people, if you referenced Median, whatever it is, Median, if, yeah. If you, if you referenced it, people almost knew about it like it was on a map. Like, right. Oh, I think the one guy says, "Oh, the old cemetery." So it must be referenced that like an assignment or something that they, they could have shown us. But I will say it was one of the, the, the highlights of, of the movie. Absolutely. Was the actual set piece and 100%. Location. And I do like that there's a little irony there that the only place that the monsters are safe is the cemetery, where it's usually the opposite, as yeah. we talked about. Um, the aesthetic, uh, the monsters on the scribble wall I loved. I felt it was creepy and cool, set a good tone at the beginning until you know our actors start opening their mouth. Um, and you cut to the monster chase, which the dream stuff kind of lost me. I, don't, I didn't really yeah. like the dream stuff, but it was well, a way to introduce us to the Nightbreed. Right. There, there's something else going on with the dreams because when he first shows up, the, the one monster's like, I dreamt him. It's like, I dreamt Oh, her. yeah. So it, it is a way of like communicating. Like, or it, maybe it is some sort of um, bridge. Has Clive Barker dealt with dreams before? Maybe. I don't know. I'm going to have to look into that. And it is set in Calgary. Is there any sort of significance to that? Uh, you think it was just cheaper to film there? Cronenberg's from Canada. Oh, okay. He lives in Canada. It may have been like, all right, we'll come to you. That makes sense. Uh, beyond the catacombs, any other notable spots with any significance? No. You got the hospital. You got Aaron's apartment, Decker's office. Those were all so Pretty standard. Clean. Yeah. 
And be, and for the uniqueness, I will say I've never seen maybe until the finale of Buffy uh, underground facility like that for bad guys. Right. So I give I give it a little bit of credit in terms of that. And it was an epic ending. It really was, and it was because of the setting that it was that epic. It was able to pull it off. Um, what about the setting of Misery? How does that aid in its ability to become the most iconic of 1990? Well, because horror does its best when it's confined. confined. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Paul being in that bed, at a certain point you're watching it, you almost feel like you're also paralyzed yourself and tied down to this location, the claustrophobic type feel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really powerful what you could do with such a small little space. True. And plus, like uh, the first scene, Colorado in the winter, unforgiving and brutal, nothing is scarier than that, cold to the bone, oh, yeah. literally. Uh, which contrasts Annie's home, which is ostensibly warm and nice and inviting oh, yeah. from Go the surface. Yeah. Like the witch's home made of candy where he Go can't help it. Home. Little does he know. Um, aesthetic? What do you think? The way that they actually like decorated her yeah, home. Do you I think mean, it spoke to it? Well, it's interesting because you're mostly in that room at bare bones. Right. And then when you go out and, and you, you kind of get a little bit of a sneak peek at her life and mm-hmm. you see her figurines... Right. She's like, my penguin always faces Medusa. One-sided relationships. Yeah. I mean, she's got that little, um, um, uh, it's got all of his books. And right. Oh, the shrine. shrine. The shrine of Paul. The shrine of Paul. Which is a little weird because the cop sees that. He, she knows that Paul is missing and he's about to leave. Yeah. I don't know why he didn't, like, any alarms didn't go off in his head. He's, she's got a shrine to this guy who's right. missing. Well, I think he did suspect it, though. You I think? think? I think okay. He did. I think he did because he, he, he caught her um, with that quote that she quoted the police to the police something from his book. Oh, okay. And that's where he connects the dots. But the, the really weird thing about her home is that she's got a secret door that goes to the basement. Yeah. And you push in. I didn't notice that. I didn't realize it oh, was yeah, a secret. A oh, wow. Okay. So the weird thing to me as a viewer is that she's either been planning this thing. Or she's done time, it before. Or she's done it before. Um, because. Everything that he finds out about her in her scrapbook is about the, the terrible things that she was doing in the hospital. Yeah. She worked in a baby ward. Oh. And the baby started dying. Um, so that's, that's sort of what you, you find out about her. But she has a hidden door to her basement, but her basement's got really normal things. So I don't know if there was a point in history. Yeah, that's interesting. Decided to the old her. Wilkes place. Maybe she comes from a family of psychopaths. Maybe some shit was going on there prior. And, and, Side note, we're going to, um, this upcoming season of Castle Rock is going to explore that. Oh. It, it's rooted um, into, I think, a young, younger Annie Wilkes. No way. Yeah. Okay. That sounds so, fun. So maybe we will learn about that. And, and I hope so. Um, One last thing I want to talk about in terms of the setting is that, in a lot of ways, it's the perfect place for him to write a book. That's the irony of it, well, right? It He's in a horrific yeah. place. But it is in terms of him as a writer, when you just think about him being a writer, uh, it's it's ideal for being creative setting, to be in, but he's forced by this abomination mm-hmm. to make a book that he doesn't want to make. Um, so, oh, okay, all right. When we get deeper meanings, yeah. All right, Util- utilization of the space limited but effective is what I put. Um, and in terms of uniqueness, I don't think it was unique. No, I think it was perfect for what it was. Uh, but like I said, I think it, was, it goes as far back as the witch in Hansel and Gretel's house. That which looks comfortable and warm and inviting that is not in the least. Okay, you know what time it is. It's time for Deeper Meanings in Nightbreed. What the hell is going on in Nightbreed? I don't know. I I tried to, I I had a real tough problem with this. I don't know if it's just about finding like, um, you know, being, being one of the outcasts in life and being comfortable with, you know, finding your, your peace. Okay, I think there is some of that. Yeah, but if, if you're trying to like figure like out... Like a be yourself? Maybe, yeah, I mean, I don't want to believe it's as simple as that, obviously. I hope it's not. Right. I think this is a better allegory than metaphor. I think I'm stretching with the metaphor I found, but we brought it up earlier about the cop seeming like a Nazi. Yes. I do feel like this was a World War II sort of allegory going on. The other is the problem. They're framed by the real menace, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, little girl, Nightbreeder, is like an Anne Frank figure. If, if you were to ask me, I really saw her as like Anne Frank. Um, and she can't go out into the light, similar to Anne Frank, right? Hunted by the cops, like the Nazis. And the one female monster that looks distinct.
distinctly Middle Eastern or Israeli, you know, so there might be yeah. something going on there. Um, and then, of course, you have the idea of man is mutant in a weird way, like the Y chromosome making man different than woman. Um, because with the exception of the spiny girl, uh, the women come off pretty ineffective. Um, I think there was there's some sort of gender stuff going on there. I'm, I haven't really fleshed it out in my head. Um, but the, at one point they say the Y chromosome mutants. So the Y chromosome, as we know, has to do with what makes dudes dudes. So I think there was some sort of commentary on guys are just a little different than, than women's naturally. Um, additionally, uh, when we talk about the metaphor, I, I really I started to think the true evil is amongst man, and while monsters are the only trying, to, and the monsters are the ones that are trying to survive, right? The man is the monster, uh, the uh, uh, yeah, and monsters are actually the empathetic beings. But here's my my uh, shot in the dark here. I think the best metaphor that can be pulled from this is about don't breed, don't bring kids into the world. Mm. I really saw, especially when you see that the poor girl who is like the Anne Frank out there and the mom can't do anything to help her, like the horrors of bringing children in the world and how hard it is to like deal with that yeah. if something's different about them. The implications on those who bring an other into the world is like scary, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I think there's something going on. The liability and pressure are the real horrors of those who breed. Right. Because specifically, Decker goes after families. I think there's some significance to the fact that he kills families. He hates breeders, <laughs> right? Yeah, there's something going on there. Um, and of course, it sort of ends like an Antichrist parable. It ends a lot like... Uh, yeah. it remind, the, the couple reminds me of Buffy and Angel a lot um, throughout... But of course, as noted before, he is kind of like an anti-Jesus Christ figure at the end. He's going to bring uh, bring a new beginning for them. Um, in terms of, sorry, go ahead. No, he's literally wearing a white T-shirt. And he's oh, good, you know. Right. He's very obviously the quote-unquote good guy, but I think there, there it was almost like a clean thing. Although that they do taint it with blood, and he does get beaten too. Like in the, in the prison, they they oh, that's right. beat him. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yes, yeah, so the martyrdom right. is there. Exactly. You're absolutely right. Um, in terms of what was going on in 1999, you have the Western Alliance ends the Cold War. So that's... A, or, I'm sorry, 1990 is what we're talking right, about. Right. 1990. Um, the Western Alliance ends Cold War and proposes joint action with Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. So you have this idea of these two larger factions finally like coming together. You, you know Clive is probably suggesting we can all get along here. Yeah. Um, it's not impossible. And then, of course, Iraqi troops invade Kuwait that year. Oh. Um, and the way that invasion at the end happens, they're essentially going into their, their territory. The cemetery is theirs, but we want, this is our land now, yeah, right? right? right. Um, there might be something going on there. Then there's a couple other little, little tidbits. The Hubble Space Telescope is launched that year. And interestingly, kind of connects to my whole don't breed metaphor, is the FDA approves use of surgically implanted contraceptives, Norplant, for the first oh. time that year. So there's some... There's some uh, Interesting stuff going on, potentially. And I, I, mean, I didn't do any research on the actual um, story uh, cabal that, that Clive Barker, but I mean, I'd be curious to know when he wrote that. Oh, yeah. In what year. That's a good point. Yeah. That's, very, that's very interesting to think about, too. What were the uh, implications in the year that that was actually written? Right, right. Same could be said for Misery, it. too, though. Yeah. We could talk about because Misery was initially yeah. a book as well. Um, lasting impact for you? Was there anything that you felt like, deeper meaning-wise, is going to stick around? No, because I feel I feel like you, you nailed it with the whole like it was a very biblical ending. Yeah, you know? like, true. It didn't necessarily scream sequel either. Like no, trying to continue it. Mm -mm. It was sort of left to your own. Um, I mean, you could see him build the new world, I guess, but I don't care. I guess I don't care at that yeah. point. I was good with they they wore me out with that final final sequence. Um, I didn't really see a lot of lasting impacts, but I did see a couple of homages, as we talked about before. Cronenberg did do The Fly. There is a scene where we have Aaron looking at himself after he's turned into the Nightbreed, seeing himself as the Nightbreed for the first time, saying, what have I become? Certainly cliche, but you see that in The Fly. Um, and then I do feel like there was an homage to Freddy getting burned by the flamethrower in there. I don't know. There was, there was a moment where as a character or one of the cops gets burned by a flamethrower. Um, I don't know. I just had flashes of, is he paying respects to what else is going on at the time right. in terms of horror? And then as noted, I certainly see a lot of connection to what Buffy does, making us sympathize and empathize with these monsters in a way. Oh, yeah. A lot of other things I mean, don't. I definitely love it from that, from that angle. In terms of deeper meaning and misery, 
I think you really started to hit it on the head when we talk about the writer himself. Uh, what did you put down for deeper meanings and misery? Well, I actually found, not to cheat here, but I really um, Ooh, found an essay? Quote. What's that? Oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I thought you read an essay or something. Oh, no, no. This was um, a quote that, that Stephen King, I didn't, uh, it, basically Stephen King was saying that Annie mm -hmm. uh, was a metaphor for drug addiction. Oh, okay. This is during his cocaine days, yeah. right? So Stephen King said that the drugs were his number one fan. Wow. And they never wanted him to leave. No kidding. So I mean, it's when you start to look at it, um, Annie was there to take care of him, and she came off really nice and welcoming. Like there's like there's a good side of drugs, and right? Feel good, but then on a dime, it could swiftly change, and uh, and she could lose it, and it, you know it's. Yeah, no, that's really an interesting angle. I mean, it makes sense if he said it, then that's what it is. Abuse and addiction and obsession. And drug abuse also has to do with mental illness, yes. too, because I put down uh, undiagnosed mental illness and the Im impact that has on other people mm -hmm. um, and the resentment that that can cause in others yeah. as well. Uh, so that's interesting that you do bring up that yeah. he was talking about what was going on with his brain chemistry at the time. Right. Otherwise, my, my, my just before I even looked that up, I, it was, to me, this was about obsession and how overall... Mm -hmm. Becoming a star can be terrifying. Uh, um, right. Treat you differently. Maybe can be deranged. Yes. I thought that maybe Stephen King was was trying to talk about how um, just how dangerous it can be to the loss of your success. yourself, your yeah. innocence. Uh, yeah, I see that. Um, I'm obsessed kind of more with Paul in terms of the metaphor than her, mm -hmm. especially hearing that now. I think yeah. I'm glad I went in a different direction with it. Um, I feel like he's dissecting the manner in which a writer doesn't live life as much as he projects what living life is right. about for others. Yeah. And like the paralysis that is being a writer, um, yeah. the implications of that, the pitfalls and loneliness associated with writing, because it's a soloistic, yeah. you know, it's a solo thing. And his legs are a metaphor for his own inaction in his normal life. Mm -hmm. Like you were talking about, why does he want to live? Why does he want to go? And he's just sitting there in front of a typewriter his entire life, imagining what life is. Uh, uh, that's, I mean, it's the other side of the coin for Annie. She's absorbed in what he creates, but he's the creator that doesn't get to live, you know? Yeah, I definitely see another similar, uh, like, biblical analogy where he's he's God and yeah. where the, she's kind of the helpless. She's helpless to him, but she wants to rally against him simultaneously. But, of course, at the end, he shows her, nope, this is my world. Um, yeah, and, and, and the whole coziness to the cabin and the seclusion, to me, what we were talking about earlier about, like, that could be a perfect place to write, but it's also very lonely at the same time. Right. Yeah, and I think there's something to that loneliness. Her childlessness is something, especially you reminded me that she worked in the, the children's ward um, and how ultimately she was probably raised in an unfortunate way. I'm looking forward to seeing that in Castle Rock, as yeah. noted. Uh, there, there's, there's two sides of the coin to bringing someone up, right? Oh, um, yeah. And then personal connections for me is just as I do some writing. I understand oh, yeah. Yeah, I love, yeah. how I let life kind of wash over me more than actively yeah, or, tackle it like how, I think he does. Yeah, like you yourself, you're, you're just talking about like you, you as a writer are um, sort of living through your, your, your art. You know? Right. You're, and my characters are my babies. He doesn't exactly. have kids, you know? Exactly. So there's yeah, something to that. Your imagination is, is, you know, sometimes it's more fun than, than you get to. Too true. Uh, Fright Factor. Let's head back to Nightbreed for our final category, which is Fright Factor. We're going to talk, discuss kill counts, quality of kills, music and sound design's impact, and the scariest scene, of course. Um, Fright Factor, uh, in terms of kills, not huge for me. No. There were six on-screen deaths, um, and ten families were alluded to being killed. I was just going to say um, that I thought Deckard was probably the scariest part of this right. film. But with the mask on, though. With the mask yeah. on. Only with the mask on. And the, but, but the kills were almost like um, like cutaways. Right. Yeah. No, I was not satisfied in the moments that we do get to see somebody die. It was a little cheesy. Uh, uh, yeah. The most affecting one, as noted, was the parents getting killed by Decker um, in their own home. Yeah. By far the scariest of the kills for me. As noted, the music design, Danny Elfman, really mm -hmm. added to the fright factor for me. He gives yeah. it that airy ambience. Oh, it was your scariest scene. The scariest scene? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think it has to be um, the killing of family. I think it kind of has to be. If you look at any other scene, yeah, like, like even the motel scene, where right? Like, That's the runner-up. It was fun, but even that, it's like you know, there's something more terrifying about him being in someone else's home. And the dad being so unaware oh, too. He was so oblivious. Yes. That poor kid. You know, he doesn't well, have a good relationship like with his dad. Couch potato. Yeah. 
His buttons are popping, yeah, right? On his uh moving that chair. You can't move when life is killing you. I, I would say that the guy cutting off his own face is sort of scary, but it's more gruesome than scary. Yeah. And he became such comic relief it's that it almost great. diminished like that moment yeah. because he became so likable. What a great like <laughs> Oh, it's awesome. Like, practical, like um, just pulling his scalp off. Yeah. No, it was super gross. The opposite of Narcissus. I, I love that. I, yeah. I didn't realize that was his name until doing yeah. a little bit of research. Um, and the cool creature FX. Oh. I thought there was some creepy-ass monsters in there. Although, I'm just sorry. He saved his face, though. What did he do you with it? it? No, no. He, oh, he just cut all cut around the face. That's true. You think about it. So he did save his looks. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> just cut around it. I think, uh, he did have a receding hairline. I think he was just yeah. grappling with that. You know what? Um, what was your what was your favorite uh, design? What do you think was the scariest monster in it? Because there was a lot of monsters, mm -hmm. or Nightbreed rather. Right. Um, I think. Well, the Berserkers. The Berserkers. The berserkers. They were the when, scariest for when sure. Lori's walking down, and, and that one grabs her foot, and then the one grabs her from behind. Right. The sound design in that scene also helped too. Like you hear like the growling, and um, yeah, because you you almost. They give you like this inside look, like like when they're initiating him into the moon gods. Or mm -hmm, right. You can sort of get to like knowing they all seem like normal in yeah, the moment. Yeah. True. Like, oh, this is family. This is your new family. So it all immediately took the scariness away from them. The guy with the dog too. What was his power? How was he Nightbreed? I, I was kind of confused by him. But later, was it Narcissi? Like, so I like your tattoos and like kind of touches him, and then he says, <sighs> "Sailors." Like, Interesting. Like, so there might be some like Tattoos. queer theory going on here, possibly too, in terms of uh, sexuality. Yeah, yes. Maybe it's a metaphor for those who don't, yeah, you know, well, stereotypically yeah. would be said, right? In society because of the Nazis. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I did think it was interesting that they take tropes from vampires and apply it to monsters in a way yeah, I really hadn't the biting, seen. The biting and not being able to go out into the, the, to the light. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was cool. Um, but as a whole, not super scary for me. No. Let's talk about Misery. Because I don't know if Misery is super scary either. No, but there are the idea that somebody would, would be upset. Again, mental illness yeah. is, is, can be scary. It, it's scarier and it's something you could actually deal with versus. It's, I think the scariest thing is that what Annie is willing to do is terrifying. That's the true. of his feet just so he yes. That's terrifying. Is that the scariest scene? Um, certainly one of the most graphic. Um, yeah, that's what I put. Ankle shatter. Yeah. What's scarier than that? Oh, maybe. Uh, yeah, no, I think that takes it. Yeah. And they, they, they do a good job of the, the scene where the sheriff's sort of walking around the house and trying to kind of create that tension. But uh-huh. Shotgun to the back. the back that is a massive hole in when she's walking, the only close one to the ankle is when she's walking down the stairs with the gun in hand and then the needle in hand, oh, telling yeah. him murder suicide time, boy. Uh, in there too. That that was super creepy. I will definitely give that one. Uh, sound design, good, ominous violins throughout. Oh yeah, um, strong, but not necessarily iconic. Like if I heard the Misery soundtrack, no. I'm not sure I'd be able to identify it as the Misery soundtrack. Um, and it's just a very human form of scariness, as I've talked about. Right. So let's do the math. All right. All right, so our scores in terms of pentagrams for Nightbreed. Uh, we are going to start here with the antagonist. Three. I gave that a two. Okay. Uh, moving down to ensemble. I gave it a three. I gave it a two. Okay. <laughs> Surviving characters. Two. 1.5. I've been harsh. Uh, settings. Four. I gave it a three. I yeah. probably will give it a 3.5, but yeah, I'll give it a three initially. Because I really only liked the underground stuff. The rest was a little... Unmentionable. Deeper meanings? One. What did I give it here? Come on, where is it? I gave it a four for deeper meanings. Uh, What's wrong with me? Because no, I was no, finding no, all that no, don't you, breed stuff. No, yeah, you, you certainly found a lot in, uh, yeah. And then Fright Factor is 2.5. Three. So that's a grand total of 15 for me and 16 for, me. 16 for you. All right, antagonists in, or antagonist in Misery? Four. Four. Ensemble? Four. 3.5. Okay. I love that sheriff. I loved him. Sheriff's good. You're right. Why am I taking off a point? I don't know. It's okay. Dude, uh, dude. Surviving characters? Four. Four. Settings? I give it a four because I, I I thought that was such a great set. Yes. But there, yeah, no. I mean, they did, I give it a 3.5, but only because, you know, 
I don't know. That's fine. It's a, it's a long time in one spot. It's sort of could have used a couple extra cutaways. Probably not though. Uh, three for the next one, which was deeper meanings. Uh, I gave it a two. You don't see any deeper meanings in there like that. No, no, I, I did, not but, enough. But because it was, um, it was, it seemed like it was so Stephen King. Yes. For me that, which is. Funny. Oh, that's actually a good point. Yeah. And then finally, fright factor. Three. Actually, my wrong. It's twenty-one for me. Oh wow! Uh, I gave two point five in fright factor, adding to a total of twenty. So the bell is rung. Misery is the most iconic mainstream horror film of nineteen ninety. Are you surprised? No. <laughs> this is a great movie. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Stephen King wouldn't let anyone else do this film if it wasn't Rob Ryan. What do you think it was about Rob that, like... I know exactly what it was. Stephen King was so impressed with his direction of Stand By Me oh. that he's like, Rob Reiner's the guy. You know my sentiment, you know my tone, you know what I'm lo looking, to, yes. looking to see. And then Rob Reiner gets William Goldman, one of the greatest screenwriters of all time, who had worked on Princess Bride with him, to do the screenplay. Um, to adapt the book. I think he wrote Lord of the Flies too. Am I crazy? Um, it sounds like he, he wrote could Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, all the Presidents Men. I mean, the, wow. the guy is—he's from Chicago too. But um, I think he wrote the book for Princess Bride in the screenplay. Wow, so that's cool. Yeah, that guy is just one of the greatest writers. So yeah, this. So to your point, no, I'm not surprised. No, it was a foregone conclusion, but it was there. They are two so different fun. types of horrors. So if you want to talk about psychological horror, it certainly takes the cape for 1990, but Nightbreed has its moments and it's definitely worth a look, especially considering these are the only two that fit the parameters for mainstream horror that are yeah. not sequels. Yeah, you didn't these out of a hat. yeah, no, and it did make the, I think uh, the, the second most money of that year in terms of horror. The only one that beat it was um, an anthology, Tales from the Dark Side, and we were not including anthologies right. in this. Uh, they, that did make considerably more money than Nightbreed, but we wouldn't have been able to talk about it in the same way, sure. so. Congratulations, Misery. You've done it. The bell has rung. Did you want to uh, tell us what you, what you got cooking? I'm uh, still doing the, the podcast, um, Set in Horror, and Monster Pulse. You can find those basically anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, yeah, and you and I have got some videos in the works. That's right. Be sure to check out the videos at cmonsters.tv. You can see them on cmonsters.tv or go straight to YouTube to youtube.com slash cmonsters. And of course, another way to support the podcast is to check out uh, my novel, Company Dreamer, um, at companydreamer.com. You can buy it through Amazon as well, where you can learn all about the advent of the dream recording industry. And also another plug, on the 16th of October, you're releasing my third album with Computactyl called They Would Know It Was Us. So keep an ear out for that, people. I want to thank Chris for being a great co-host today, and thank you all for listening. The bell has rung. <laughs>